Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. I think it was Warren Buffett who said, never bet against America, which is funny because I have lost count of the times we have looked in awe at US market valuations defying gravity and questioned their sustainability. But time and time again, the US market bounces back. The truth is, you cannot argue with the breadth and the depth of the capital markets in the States and the country's ability to move capital to productive areas of the economy. My guest this week has a forensic knowledge of US equity markets. His name is Anthony Kingsley. He's the managing partner and CIO at Findlay Park. Now, Findlay Park is an equity specialist founded by James Findlay and Charlie Park in 1998. Anthony joins not long after as a founding partner. So for the last 25 years, they have run their flagship American fund. Now, in this episode, which is a great one, Anthony discusses his career, what drew him to the world of investments, the philosophy and rigorous investment process they implemented at Findlay Park. We also discuss the kind of stocks he likes and what the future holds for the US and the potential American advantage in a globalized world. Anthony is a legend. He's also an incredibly nice guy. I do hope you enjoy this one. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Anthony Kingsley, welcome to the podcast. Now, Anthony, we're going to start with your background. I wonder what first drew you to the world of investment management? Well, I didn't know much about investment or investment management, but I was fortunate enough to have some work experience at an asset management firm. And I suddenly realized that actually this was a job where you could learn. You could learn about the world. You could learn about companies. You could learn about markets. You could learn about the changes that are taking place in the world. And this is just a fascinating place. And I've always been someone who's enjoyed learning. I think I'm quite curious. And uh, that attracted me to the business. I was fortunate enough that I was offered a job on a graduate training program for an asset management firm. And really, that's sort of where it all started. Let's now introduce Finley Park. I wonder if you can give us a, a potted history of Finley Park and introduce the philosophy and process. Yeah, so Finley Park was founded in 1998, uh, so 25 years ago. And it was founded in order to generate really attractive compound returns in America by actually investing in small companies in America. And over the 25 years, that has evolved somewhat to investing in all cap companies. So we now invest in small cap, mid cap, large cap. And that's been an evolution. But one of the things that hasn't really changed is the philosophy. And the philosophy has been very much around trying to generate a really attractive compound rate of return by avoiding losses in individual companies. Most investors, I think what they try and do is that they say, how much can I make if I'm right? But our starting point is not how much can we make if I right. It's how much can we lose if we're wrong in any individual investment. And if you can manage the downside risk of any individual investment, then as long as you invest in sensible companies doing good things, then over time you can generate a pretty good compound rate of return. It sounds simple, but it's that focus on how much we can lose if we're wrong is really key to that understanding compounding. And you know, past performance is not an indicator of future returns, of course. However, you have compounded, as you said, nearly 12% over the last 25-odd years versus the Russell 1000 of 7.1, S&P of 7. I wonder if 
when looking for sustainable businesses, that leads you into certain categories of the market and perhaps asked a different way, does that mean that you avoid certain companies in your investment analysis? Yes. So there are certain areas that we are biased a little bit against, and that's because we have an investment philosophy checklist, which guides us towards companies that have strong competitive advantage, high quality businesses, businesses that generate high returns without the use of leverage. So for example, taking those into consideration, we generally don't invest in banks because in order to generate a good return on equity, you need to have a levered balance sheet. You lever your assets typically 10 to 1. There are other areas historically that we haven't invested in to a large extent, you know, certain areas of the consumer, whether it's you know, restaurant stocks or retailers. In healthcare, we tend not to invest in biotech or pharma. And again, these are areas that are consistent with that investment philosophy framework of trying to manage downside risk if we're wrong. But that said, we have a very diversified portfolio across all sorts of different businesses, whether in technology or healthcare, whether it's business services, financials, software, and so on. So we're trying to produce a, a portfolio that is highly diversified by individual company, by individual sector. And we think there's a lot of opportunity within the American market to do that. Well, let's try and outline the opportunity because you need to be a brave person to bet against the US. You know, if you take a 20 to five year view, you know, if you haven't been in the US, you've probably outperformed the MCI world. At this juncture, with the US as such a large proportion of the global equity market, you know, what are the key sort of drivers of returns and going forward? Yes, well, you're right. I think commentators reading the press here, as I've done over the last 25 to 30 years, one shouldn't underestimate America. America just works. You've got a huge population. You've got a country that is energy independent. They are large food exporters. They don't rely on global trade to the extent that you know maybe other countries do. A capitalist system that works, private markets, public markets, and you know, an entrepreneurial spirit, a rule of law. You put all those things together and it's a pretty powerful combination. When you look at the biggest companies in America, America's ability to innovate and create new companies, new businesses, is sort of second to none. You only have to look at these mega cap companies that didn't exist, many of them, 20, 25 years ago. It is the most amazing country in terms of capital allocation, like the country's ability to move capital around the economy in an efficient way to where it's needed most is just extraordinary. And I think if you compare it to you know, places like Asia, where you, know, you get businesses that are run not for shareholders, that are run for political means or, or incentives or, or indeed family interests, I wonder if you can pinpoint exactly why that is. Are there underlying reasons for that ability to allocate capital better? I don't know about allocate capital better. You know, that certainly could be an element of it. But I think you just have this vast population of 300 million plus people where you can leverage your idea, your business model in a far greater way than you might be able to do in, in the UK or in France or in Germany mm-hmm. and then having to try and maneuver that business model over different geographies and countries. So it's a wonderful landscape with which to leverage you know, a large amount of revenue and become quite dominant. Mm. Uh, and from there, perhaps replicate that on an overseas basis. So let's look forward and, you know, let's take the next 10 years. What do you think are the sort of key themes that are going to drive the market 
over the next 10 years. You know, we're coming off the back of an extraordinary period for the American stock market, and there have been a number of drivers of that. But looking forward, you know, what are the key sort of underpinnings of growth? Yeah, so I think we're at an interesting juncture because since the Second World War, we've been in a period of globalization and global trade as a percentage of GDP post-war was, was probably somewhere around 10%. And over the last 60 or 70 years, that rose to about 50% of GDP. And we were in an environment where we saw political integration and economic integration to a massive extent. So we obviously had the Treaty of Rome and then we had the Maastricht Treaty. We've had NAFTA in the 90s, the integration of Mexico and Canada, obviously, into the US. You had the the establishment of GATT post-war, and then that turned into the, the WTO. And, you know, China joining the WTO in, in the early 2000s, I think it was 2001. And yet we seem to have maybe have hit a ceiling there. Perhaps four or five years ago, we started to see the election of governments that were more protectionist. Donald Trump first started introducing his tariffs in, in 2018. We've had Brexit. We've had many more concerns around security of supply, which has been heightened by COVID, whether it's the dominance of China in semiconductors or biologics. COVID, you know, made people realize the importance of have we gone too far in pushing globalization and do we need to bring these supply chains back? And I think that's just a very important kind of macro construct to think about. And I mentioned earlier, you know, the advantages of America in terms of being energy self-sufficient. Actually, I think America's trade as a percentage of its GDP is around 10%. So it's not going to be as affected by, you know, potentially by deglobalization. And so against that backdrop, I think America has some important relative advantages as companies are thinking about reshoring and bringing back supply chains closer to home. I guess it's the sort of theme from moving from a sort of just-in-time to a just-in-case production uh, facilities. And we certainly we hear it from the companies that we listen to. I wonder, though, how you kind of knit together that quite macro theme, that macro view of, of reshoring, nearshoring, building out supply to your kind of bottom-up investment process and how you would play that theme well, it's a great question. It can come in a number of different ways. I mean, the starting point is our philosophy and our philosophy checklist. And so we're looking at the quality of the business, the quality of the company, the, the moat, the competitive advantages, and so on. And so the starting point is, is it a good business? But in addition to that, I think we've got a number of tailwinds now where you've got the US government putting through legislation, whether it's the CHIPS Act, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act, whether it's the, the IIJA, the Jobs Act. And these are huge amounts of stimulus. The IIJA was 1.3 trillion program to encourage companies across a wide variety of sectors to invest back in America, whether it's semiconductors, whether it's biotechnology plants, whether it's industrial gas plants. And so we can take advantage of that in a number of ways, whether it's Texas Instruments in semiconductors, whether it's air products in industrial gases, whether it's 
through the railroads, if we're going to have more industrial activity, Canadian National or a Union Pacific or a, a Burlington Northern Santa Fe, which is part of Berkshire Hathaway, can benefit. So you can actually have some large companies, large global multinational companies that can benefit. As I say the starting point is our checklist. But then in addition to that, I think what's really interesting is that some of the more domestic smaller and mid-cap companies, mm -hmm. for example, a Granger in industrial distribution, a Ferguson in, in heating and plumbing supplies. You know, these are all great fits with our checklist, but they will have some very nice tailwinds here that will help them potentially over the next decade as supply chains look to be reshored. And as you say, we move to more just in time as opposed to, you know, pushing that supply chain out and, and seeing the risk of doing so. That's an interesting theme. And I suppose you know, again, looking at the the tailwinds from the last 10 years, trying to sort of work out what drove the market. I mean, there was a big small cap versus large cap divide. You know, I think there's a lot of big moves in, in large caps. And, you know, a lot of the, the smaller caps didn't join that rally to the same extent. I wonder how you think about your company analysis against the backdrop of higher prices. And what happens if we are in a different regime? You know, how would you want your companies to be reacting to that? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. The last decade, you've seen a selection of mega cap companies perform exceptionally well. And I think we've done some analysis that shows that eight companies generated almost half the return of the index over the last 10 years. And that's because those companies were growing very rapidly. I think those companies compounded revenues at 25% a year. And uh, collectively, I think they have 1.5 trillion of revenue today. Now, is it likely that those eight companies are going to continue to compound at 25% a year for the next decade? I think unlikely. They'll probably represent 30% of GDP if that were to happen. And I think in addition, whether you look at Alphabet or Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, many of these companies, I think, are going to have more competition. In a way, they have certain markets to themselves. I think they're going to find it more challenging. There's going to be more overlap. More of those companies are going to be competing against each other. They'll have some additional competition. They obviously have a lot more regulatory oversight. So for various reasons, we think that that concentration that we've seen over the last decade or so is not going to repeat itself. And at the same time, the mid caps, the small caps and the mid caps are trading at close to 25 year lows on a relative valuation compared to the S&P 500. So this confluence of events, frankly, is quite exciting for us. We've got a team of people just focused on America. We think that sort of environment would be a much better environment for finding and identifying these slightly smaller companies. When I say smaller companies, sort of you know, three to $50 billion, where two thirds of our ideas have come in the last 18 months. So we think it's going to be a different environment. Obviously, our aim is to continue to compound at an attractive rate of return, but it'll be probably be a slightly different flavor than, than mm. from the past. It does feel like, you know, a lot of these companies, the big mega caps, as you identify, you know, have, have enjoyed extraordinary tailwinds from very low cost of capital, low interest rates, abundant credit, essentially. And you almost want to need to apply a sort of old-fashioned, almost value-orientated balance sheet integrity, mindful of leverage, both operating leverage and financial leverage, making sure, as you say, you know, as part of your process, you tend to screen out companies that are reliant on external funding. 
I wonder if I can ask a direct question on, on bankruptcies and that sort of clearing out of capacity in America. And since the pandemic struck me that bankruptcies have stayed low, have you seen any kind of changes to that as we get a normalized cost of capital? I think not yet would be the short answer. Obviously, we've all read and seen the high profile banking issues here in the first quarter, SVB Financial, Signature Bank. Those companies did effectively go bankrupt, but were were rescued by the FDIC and have or will be sold on. And I think we'll see some more fallout in the banking sector. Outside of that, the environment has been, as you say, very, very supportive in terms of low interest rates, you know, freely available credit. So I think, you know, the first step really is last year we saw a multiple correction in the market. This year, I'd characterize it probably as a sort of earnings correction. And I think late 2023, maybe 24 is going to be, you know, the credit repercussions here. I think it just has to take time to sort of get through the system. I think we will see it, but we haven't seen much of it yet. I suppose in a regime change, it's quite difficult for investors, market participants, and even consumers to really understand and get you know, the psychological aspects of a regime change into their minds. And, you know, you saw it, it probably wasn't until about 2012, I'd say, that, you know, people really understood this idea of the Fed put and the fact that you would have this backstop and Mario Draghi in Europe would come out and do whatever it takes, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder if, from a portfolio positioning, you've done much sort of reshuffling and, you know, have you been moving things around in the portfolio to express these views? Or have you kind of stuck with your onions and, and stuck with your sort of old favorites? We have made a number of changes. It's been more of an evolution. But you know, at one stage, we had, we're at the lower end of our 40 to 60 stocks. And today, we're close to the high end of that. And that has been a somewhat a function of bringing in more of these, what I call mid-cap, as we define them, ideas. So below $50 billion market cap, in the last 18 months, two-thirds of the new companies that come into the portfolio have been in that range. So in our recent newsletter, we highlighted a number of companies which we think are attractive in this range. So I think you should probably expect us to be you know, more towards the higher end of that range of 40 to 60 going forward, reflecting some of the things that I've just been talking about, more mid-cap ideas, mm-hmm. a diversified portfolio, moving away from the mega-caps. In fact, 60% of the S&P 500 index is over a $100 billion market cap. For us, that is less than 40%. So we are definitely skewed away from these mega caps towards more mega caps. But we do still find you know, opportunity there and we will, we will invest in that area as well. So can you give us some examples of, of some of the new names that, that have sort of entered the portfolio over the last year? Yes, yeah, sure. So Acom, an engineering and construction services company. West, a pharmaceutical medical supplies company that makes vial stoppers. It's a sort of supplies all of biotech and pharma with a very high market share. And they've got some very interesting new products. Steris, which is another company in healthcare. One exception in terms of a slightly sort of bigger company, it's about 80 billion market cap, is Airbnb, which was a company that came down very sharply in 2022. But in fact, from the ashes, we think, you know, a phoenix will rise. And this is one of those companies where we think it was thrown out with a bunch of other companies. And, and in fact, you know, they're generating very strong cash flows. We think they've got good competitive mm-hmm. advantage. Well, just thinking about the competitive advantage of Airbnb, I mean, where do you pinpoint it? I mean, is it scale? Is it network effect? I mean, where would you 
hurt its ability to generate durable returns? Well, first of all, it's a noun, but it's also a verb, which is wonderful from a marketing perspective. So if you look at you know, Booking.com or Expedia or some of their competitors, they have to spend a lot of money with search engines, um, Alphabet, Google, whereas Airbnb, most of their traffic comes direct. The vast majority of it comes direct. And so because of the name recognition, and obviously there's scale that comes with that, one of being one of the largest short-stay providers, they have a sort of maniacal focus on um, looking after the customer and looking after the host. They don't always get it right. And I'm sure, you know, from time to time you hear of issues, but you know, they've been growing their hosts. They've been growing their bookings and uh, they've been growing their profitability. And we think, you know, as a sort of model, he's got some very defensible characteristics. And I want to turn finally to my final question. I always ask this to all of our, our guests. What advice would you give to some of our younger listeners who are maybe thinking about a career in investment management, what skills do they need to equip themselves with to be successful in this industry? Well, I think, you know, it's probably going to sound a bit cliche, but I think curiosity is, is clearly important. And uh, just keep digging, keep asking why. You know, there are times where you're going to uh, be challenged, you know, personally, or people will question you in your career or question you. But, you know, it's important to have the courage of your conviction and to keep going and not letting people get you down or tell you you're doing something wrong when you feel, you know, in your gut that that is the right thing to do. So, um, you know, keep going, keep persevering, have belief in yourself, stay curious. But ultimately, if you're somewhere where, you know, you're not learning, then you know, do something about it. You know, try and get yourself in a position where you can just keep learning, whether it's from other people, whether it's from a mentor. And, you know, I've been very lucky. I had James Finley as, as a mentor of mine. And, uh, you know, that stood me in very good stead. So those are a few things. Curiosity and resilience. I like it. Anthony Kingsley, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Anthony Kingsley. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe, and let your friends or colleagues know. And if you want any more information about Findlay Park, head to their website at findlaypark.com. Thank you. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.